Cooper Stadium sits abandoned on Mound Street, but the future of this historic ballpark is about to be ahead of its time. I'm Thomas Bradley, and this is After the Score. Welcome to After the Score, 89.7's weekly look at sports in and around Central Ohio. I'm Thomas Bradley. This week on the show, we'll be talking to a longtime usher at Ohio Stadium and learning about some of the stories from inside the horseshoe you may have never heard before. We'll also talk to Patrick Murphy from Massive Report about the Columbus crew. Last year, the crew were competing for an MLS championship. The forecast for this season, however, not as good. And you'll seriously never guess what was found in a dumpster in Columbus. It was almost lost forever, but salvaged by a junk picker to be forever preserved in museums and memorabilia shrines. Seriously, you'll never guess what was found, so stay tuned. But first, Cooper Stadium, the longtime home of the Columbus Clippers. And the stadium last saw baseball action in September of 2008. It now sits abandoned, and its replacement is thriving in the Arena District. That, of course, being Huntington Park. Baseball is often called America's pastime, and play dates back to the 1800s. And this one-time home of countless double plays, foul balls, and strikeouts may now help pave the way to a future technology in the world. In the home, Derek Jeter perfected the ability to drive a ball to right field. Driverless vans will soon be tested to drive employees from nearby neighborhoods to their jobs at Easton Town Center. For more on the history of Cooper Stadium and the progression from an all-American pastime to future innovation, I'm joined now by Tom Knox from Columbus Business First. He wrote about the city of Columbus's plan to use the old ballpark on its way to winning a $50 million grant. Tom, first, give us a little background about Cooper Stadium. Sure. Uh, Cooper Stadium's always been on the sort of border of Franklinton and Hilltop and, um, uh, you know, was state-of-the-art, I guess you could say, when it opened. Um, but um, towards the end there, not many people were going to the games, a couple thousand. Um, and, you know, during the 90s, Yankees' heyday, I remember being a kid and, and getting tickets to go see Derek Jeter and the decade Rabu. I mean, there were some really, really good uh, Yankees players who, who came through Columbus in the 90s and maybe early 2000s. Um, but the, the ballpark just wasn't very good anymore. Um, that area of town, a lot of people just don't want to go to um, so that's kind of what led to its uh, its demise and the, and the building of uh, Huntington Park here in the Arena District in downtown. So what's going on with Cooper Stadium now? I remember, I think it was three years ago on WSU's Airways, they did a story about them selling all the seats from Cooper Stadium, and the entire field was completely overgrown. The stadium was sold to a company called Arshot. What's what's going on with Arshot? Right. Arshot, uh, their principal is Bill Schottenstein, and uh, he didn't return my call for the story but he is um, a, a pretty well-known developer he his company is behind the proposed uh, millennial tower that's going to be uh, I think 25 story tower along Scioto Mile um, they've owned it for a while and and there's been plans and kind of starts and stops um, about what will actually go on in there but they do plan eventually to have this thing called spark which is sports billion and automotive research complex which would be a a kind of a, a racetrack and a research center for for automotive uh, technologies. Um, they have had 
businesses that have committed to going inside there. But as of now, um, when I went down there to take photos last month, um, there, there's not much in the way of actual construction going on. However, the, the city said that within three years, they, they hope to have, uh, you know, smart city testing going on at Spark. You mentioned smart city. Columbus won a smart city grant. I think it was $50 million. How is Cooper Stadium going to be involved with this smart city grant they received? Well, the city wants to use Spark um, as a sort of testing site, right? It's, it, they're going to have a, a track in there. It would be good to use. Um, the city has various technologies. They have uh, the main thing I think they would they would like to do there is to test out its uh, driverless vans that will be uh, working uh, in the eastern area, taking people from Linden to the eastern retail jobs. So their goal is to, to use the half-mile paved test track to test out the technologies that will eventually be actually used here uh, in Columbus. So a couple of years ago, Cooper Stadium was completely overgrown. Is it is it still that way, or what? Describe what you saw when you took pictures of down there last month. It I haven't been inside, but the outside looks the same. Um, you know, it's it's the same sort of empty Cooper Stadium. I didn't see any construction trucks or anything like that going on inside. There were signs um, posted outside talking about the retail and office opportunities. Uh, if, if people would like to. Um, I guess, lease space or, or whatever inside there. But it's um, right now there's still not much going on. And um, I think if there was something going on, then maybe uh, 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 our shot would have, would have returned my call to talk about it. And it, it's important to note that everything in the Smart City application is what the city has talked about and would like to do. But um, it's, it's not 100% that, that this would actually happen. The future of Cooper Stadium still very much in the air, but it mm-hmm. it seems to be progressing as, as the Columbus wins the Smart City Grant, $50 million, and they're going to try to incorporate this somewhat historic, his, we'll say historic landmark into their Definitely. plans. I've been talking with Tom Knox. He's with Columbus Business First. Tom, thanks for joining me. Thank you. This may be one of the strangest sports stories I've ever come across. And it has to do with a junk picker in Columbus who stumbled upon an old family scrapbook, one that contained priceless NFL memorabilia, specifically photos, signatures, and mementos from the life of Joseph F. Carr. Joe Carr is the father of the National Football League, often credited with making the league what it is today. The scrapbook is estimated to be worth at least $150,000 and is being auctioned off by a company called Heritage Auctions in Houston, Texas. The company says they have no clue how the scrapbook ended up in a dumpster, and they have no information about whom it may have belonged to. But the most valuable piece found in the book is a photograph of Tim Mara, owner of the New York Giants in the 1930s. And on the photo was a note inscribed to Joe F. Carr, founder and father of the NFL. A couple of years ago, Steve and I talked to author Chris Willis. He wrote a book called Joe F. Carr, The Man Who Built the National Football League. We thought this really obscure news of the scrapbook being found would be a great time to replay this 2014 interview. Chris Willis, welcome to After the Score. Uh, Thanks for having me. So Joseph Carr was obviously an interesting guy with this great story. Let's start from the beginning. Uh, He grew up in Columbus. Tell us about his life and then how he got involved in the business of football. Yeah, Joe Carr was a uh, was born and raised there in Columbus, Ohio, uh, sort of in the where the Irish neighborhood was. Uh, 
kind of where Columbus State is technically now, you know, is where the Irish neighborhood, you know, was. Uh, near da- uh, near downtown. Was, yes. Yeah, uh, so um, he was born in 1879. Uh, um, his dad was a shoemaker uh, and then owned uh, uh, sort of a, a grocery store slash saloon, you know, during that time and uh, was uh, really involved in sports growing up, you know, uh, sort of after – what would you call middle school uh, is when he sort of took off. He became um, a sports writer um, first at the Ohio State Journal. Uh, and then part-time he was working at the um, Columbus Panhandle Division of the Pennsylvania Railroad. And, uh, and that's where he sort of saw some of the football players like the Nesser brothers and the Columbus Panhandles, you know, starting out, you know, with the football. So so the sports writing grew into running the football team. Uh, he, he helped run the Columbus Senators baseball team. Uh, so sports was always sort of something he loved and gravitated to, although he did not play them. <laughs> he was a smaller man, you know, you know, uh, you know, under well under six foot, but he loved just you know the organization and and sort of the potential of you know, organizing sports and following sports uh, in different realms more than an athlete. And that started right there in Columbus, you know, you know, right there in Central Ohio, and uh, became a very popular man uh, in the sports scene. You know, like I said, starting with his sports writing days and then sort of running, actually running baseball and football teams there in Central Ohio. You know, Chris, I have to be honest. I've lived in Columbus a lot of my life and never heard of the Columbus Panhandles. You know, this is a professional football team from the early 1900s. I get that a lot, too. Uh, I mean, I was born in Columbus. I grew up in German Village, and uh, I think for most of us, we gravitated to high state, high state football, high state football, and we loved college football, and then you had the pro teams there in the state, and you kind of forget that the that the NFL and the Columbus Panthers, which was an early successful pro team, was uh, established right there, uh, you know, in Central Ohio. And that way, hey, we had a very successful, you know, professional team that got started in the NFL. And, and you know, uh, they sort of got older once the NFL, you know, sort of took off in the 20s and, and 30s. Uh, and also the popularity of Ohio State took over, too. It was going to be a college town. And to give credit to Joe Carr, he saw that. I mean, he was involved in, in the early days of the NFL. He saw, hey, this is probably going to be a college town. The university is very popular. You know, the, you know, high stadium was just being built. You know, they were taken off. He's like, you know what? We need to be in a little bit bigger cities. And mm-hmm. so for most Central Highlands, yeah, Joe Carr and the Columbus Panthers doesn't ring a bell as much as maybe high state football. We're talking about Columbus's ties to the National Football League and its founder, Columbus native Joe Carr. We're joined by Chris Willis, the author of the book, The Man Who Built the National Football League, Joe F. Carr. So, Chris, tell us about the NFL's early days. You told us how Mr. Carr founded the league. How did the league start in its infant stages, and then how did it develop into this monstrosity it is now? Well, uh, especially in the the 20s and 30s, um, and I think that's where Joe Carr kind of gets lost uh, in in, in the history of the National Football League, is he and some of these other owners sort of built what the foundation is now, you know. Um, And he was really one of the big force in that, you know. uh, One one of his main accomplishments was moving the NFL from the small towns of those early years to the big cities and finding financially capable owners to run them. So when you see the Mara family – running the Giants now, the Rooney family running, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Detroit Lions came into the league, you know, the Cleveland Rams, which became now the St. Louis Rams, mm-hmm. uh, the Washington Redskins. He helped recruit some of these owners to help solidify the league that sort of, you know, that's what we sit on now. It, you know, it, was, more of, it was more of a minor league kind of barnstorming type thing back then. Yeah, there was a lot of travel teams. There was a lot of teams that just would come in for a few years, run out of money, and then and leave. And Joe, you know, saw that. And some of the early owners, like George Hallis, you know, and like I said, Art Rooney, they saw. Look, in order for us to be more 
established and have that continuity year in and year out, you know, we need to be in the big cities first, you know, kind of like Major League Baseball at the time, you know, that only had about 12 teams, and we need financial capable owners that sort of, hey, they might take some hits early. I mean, the Rooney family and the Mara family, they lost a lot of money in those early years, and then they saw that, hey, this could be a really good sport. It could be popular. Let's make it entertaining, and they saw that as those early owners, and um, and that helped sort of where we sit now, you know, you know, when, when, when you look at back at it and, and you look at some of these, you know, owners that are well-established and the cities that they're in, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's not minor league. It's not, you know, year to year, oh, we're going to have these franchises, we're going to have these players, you know, it, it's pretty well-established. And that was, like I said, at the end of the 30s, that was being established and they were, you know, 10 teams. They're very, you know, successful. You know, they were going to be successful. They had owners that wanted to be successful. Uh, and that's where cars sort of, you know, influences those, you know, what we sit on today is, hey, this is where the NFL could be. Yeah, just a few things that Joe Carr did. He created the organization's first constitution, uh, implemented standard player contracts, and uh, helped develop the NFL draft. So he was really ahead of his time, even at that time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were things that, you know, now we take for granted. You look at, oh, wow, that's been in place for 50 years. But back then, they were new, you know, to to do, you know, a contract so, so players don't jump from team to team, you know, to have constitution and bylaws, you know, to follow. And, and the draft was another huge thing. That was a big gamble for those owners, you know, that, hey, the Bears – uh, the Bears and the Giants and the big cities—they were dominating the NFL at that time. They, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, winning championships. And those teams like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh were just—they were struggling. And but the Bears and the Giants had all the money to to get the best players, and they were so. But Hallis and Mayer and some of those players or some of those owners sacrificed. They look and Carr led this. They look, this is better for the league when the players come in now. The teams that had the worst records now get the best opportunity to get those players, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so that and like I said, now we take that for granted. Oh, that's easy. It's competitive balances, you know, what they call it. But a lot of those early things were just getting started. They were just brand new. Hey, let's do a draft. You know, like I said, let's, um, uh, you know, let's do statistics. Let's split the t- the, the 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 National Football League into two, you know, divisions and have a World Championship game. All that stuff was being discussed, in, you know, in the twenties and throughout the thirties and. Um, mm-hmm. Now we take that for granted. We're talking about Columbus's ties to the National Football League and its founder, Columbus native Joseph Carr. We're speaking with Chris Willis, who wrote the book, The Man Who Built the National Football League, Joe F. Carr. The NFL was headquartered in Columbus while Joe Carr was president. Did, did the NFL kind of reach its ceiling in Columbus and have to move on? Or are there any current connections to the NFL in Columbus right now? Well, uh, to your first part of your question, yes. Uh, when Joe Carr became the NFL president in 1921, which was the second year um, of the National Football League, Jim Thorpe was the first year, and he was an athlete. He was not an administrator. So Joe Carr took over, and the first thing he did was set up a headquarters. We need a headquarters, and he, and he put it right there in Columbus, Ohio. It's a broad and high, 16 East Broad. You know, the Hayden Building is still there. So if, you, if you're down there at the intersection, that's where the first NFL office was. Um, and then, unfortunately, when he passed away in 1939, he was still in office. You know, he passed away uh, from a second heart attack. Um, he still would have kept the office there. You know, it, it bounced around a little once they started getting uh, new commissioners. Uh, they went to Chicago first and then Philadelphia with Burt Bell and then obviously to New York when Pete Rozelle became commissioner. But that's a really nice historical you know, piece of history there in Columbus that, hey, we, we have the first, you know, headquarters and it's still there. The building is still there, uh, the 11th floor there, you know, at that building at 16 East Broad. Um, but right now, because of the, the, the popularity of Ohio State, like I said, it, it gets totally lost. You know, you know uh, I think a lot of people, you know, like I said, we've talked about, you know, Columbus not, 
you know, knowing that history, hey, we, we were part of the early history of the NFL, you know, with the headquarters and an early, you know, pro team. And um, but now there, there's not like there's no historical marker down there. There's no sort of recognition down there, um, which is a little unfortunate. Uh, I think slowly but surely some people are starting to recognize that, you know, hopefully, you know, some people there, you know, uh, within uh, the offices down there, you know, can kind of, hey, this is part of our history. But but it does get lost. I, I don't think mm-hmm. it comes to mind very quickly for people there in central Ohio that, hey, this is where a really good early NFL history is still there. Yeah, like I said, I've lived in Columbus a long time and, and never even knew about this. Well, yeah. This, yeah, this has been a really great informative discussion. Chris Willis wrote the book, The Man Who Built the National Football League, Joe F. Carr, who was from Columbus and uh, wrote about Columbus being the first home, the first headquarters of the National Football League. Chris, thanks again. Thanks, Steve and Thomas, for having me. Appreciate it. Switching from the NFL to college football, more specifically inside the horseshoe, I recently had the opportunity to talk to a man who has been to every Ohio State home game since 1997. He's been in the same section every game and is actually usually one of the first people into the stadium on Saturdays, except he's never actually had a ticket to a game. Don't worry, he's not a villain or a criminal. In fact, he's one of the nicest men you'll ever talk to. He's part of a group of men and women whose jobs it is to make the game day experience perfect for every fan. He's an OSU usher. Trevor Zahara wrote the book, Confessions of an OSU Usher, and he joins me now on the phone. Trevor, welcome to After the Score. Well, thank you for having me. You've, you've been an usher at Ohio State since 1997. Surely there's hundreds, if not thousands, of stories you could tell, which is part of the reason you wrote a book, telling those stories. What what are some of those stories that stick out to you that can kind of paint the picture of what it's like to be at the horseshoe every Saturday in the fall? Oh, yeah, I've had uh, – this will be my 19th year as an usher at Ohio Stadium. And by golly, there's been all kinds of great stories. Uh, uh, how about the, the, the lady from Michigan that uh, was uh, – oh, man, she was beside herself. Uh, you know, she went up to the, one of the other ushers and says – gosh, can you help me? Can you help me? And he says, I'll certainly try. What, you know, what happened? She said, I lost my purse. And uh, so I lost your purse. Well, we'll help you find it. She says, you know, I really didn't lose it. I dropped it in the porta potty No, no. So, yeah, so that was back before the stadium was, uh, was renovated. And, uh, oh, gosh, uh, another lady. Uh, this happened during the Michigan game, too. It seems to be a, a trend here, but uh, – but, uh, Lady came down and said, uh, "Gosh, there's, uh, you know, there's no room for my husband and me to sit in this, uh, in this aisle, you know." And so I went up there and I looked, and there was this four guys, four of the biggest guys that you ever want to see. They looked like sumo wrestlers. They probably could have played for uh, Coach Cooper that year, but uh, uh, you know, there's only so many inches per, you know, uh, per seat. So. Uh, Fortunately, there was a couple extra seats for the, the people, so uh, I, I moved them out. So uh, that was a, a, uh, one of the uh, opportunities to uh, help out fans, because that's really what we're there for as, as ushers. And you know, there's uh, actually 529 ushers, and uh, that's our responsibility is to make sure that you know 
all the fans have a safe and uh, and fun time at at Ohio Stadium. Yeah, in the beginning of your book, you outlined how many people go into this this system, this program. You mentioned 529 ushers, then the 185 yeah. supervisors, 475 red coats, Boy Scout ushers. There, there's a ton of people that go into making the game day experience at Ohio State. You mentioned you mentioned a couple. Uh, acts of service that that you or some other ushers did, but some of the other parts of your mission statement, safety, courtesy, a neat appearance, well, what, is, what is the ultimate goal of being an usher at Ohio State? Well, the ultimate goal is, uh, you know, uh, all of us ushers are, are, are passionate uh, Buckeye fans, and, uh, you know, we love what we're doing. And, you know, Thomas, up until this year, we've all been volunteers. We didn't get paid for our job. And, uh, uh, we had a uh, an earlier meeting uh, this year already, and they announced that uh, they were going to start paying all the ushers, all 529 of us. And uh, the supervisors get a, a stipend because uh, the supervisors, you know, the portal chiefs, the people that have to uh, handle the uh, radios and stuff during the games uh, uh, have, have been paid. But this is the first year in the history of – of uh, the OSU Stadium that the uh, ushers are going to be be uh, paid because we've all been volunteers. And uh, you had mentioned the Redcoats. Now, the Redcoats are the ticket takers, and they're the ones that scan your tickets as they're coming in, and they work other environments such as the uh, Schottenstein Center, the, you know, the Davis uh, Baseball, you know, do the hockey, and uh, that is a paid position. And some of the Redcoats are also ushers at the stadium, so they get uh, – they get a dual opportunity. But we're all very passionate uh, Buckeye fans, and we love what we're doing. And we're there to, you know, make sure that it is a safe and, and fun environment for all the fans coming in. And that's our duty is to is to, is to just, uh, no, no matter if it's an Ohio State fan or one of the uh, competitors coming into our stadium, we want to make everybody feel welcome to Ohio Stadium. Unless they're coming down the ramp and you see it ahead of time and can make a quick joke that we're all sold out and to turn the other fans away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do some good, good nature, nature joking with uh, with the competitors, but uh, uh, they love it. And uh, which brings me to another story that one of my fellow ushers brought up is that uh, uh, this lady said that her son uh, has just gotten back from Afghanistan. He was a sergeant over in Af- Afghanistan, U.S. Army sergeant, and uh, this was his first game that he attended with his, uh, with his girlfriend, and he wanted to make it a special occasion and ask if he could escort his, uh, his girlfriend down on the field because he wanted to propose to her. And, uh, you know, that's really, you know, not allowed, but uh, the usher talked to his supervisor, and the supervisor got permission, you know, for the young sergeant to uh, actually go down onto the field. And so uh, the uh, young sergeant took his girlfriend down on the field, and they, and, uh, and she thought that she was just going to get a picture taken. Well, as they got down in the field, the young sergeant uh, got down on his knee and pulled out his, the diamond ring and, and proposed, and uh, uh, his fiance then started screaming, <laughs> and she said yes. So, uh, uh, so you know, we, we try to make it a fun environment and you know try to go that extra length uh, you know for our wonderful fans
Last season, the Columbus crew were competing for an MLS championship. They, they lost in the final to the Portland Timbers, but they were a solid team, a, a top 10 team, a top 2 team, actually, because they came in second place. This year, not so much. They are a couple games out of a playoff spot and have been below all expectations. I'm joined now by Patrick Murphy. He writes for Massive Report. Patrick, what is going on with the Columbus crew this year, and, and why aren't they living up to any expectation whatsoever? Yeah, it's been a weird season. Um, as you mentioned, the success of last year was expected to carry over. They returned you know, pretty much everybody that uh, started that that final game, um, the championship game, and uh, you know, so so there was a big big expectations that they would uh, continue that run. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't gone that way. They uh, started the season pretty slow. Um, there was you know talk of you know just kind of maybe overconfidence, maybe you know they were just kind of a hangover from making that that run last year. And but things have have really kind of been stuck in neutral, even when they've they've started to look good again. You know, you'll have one half of, of good soccer and then, you know, a bonehead play or, or something along those lines that kind of negates everything they've done. Um, you know, it just hasn't really looked like the same team that, uh, that looked so confident and so, you know, for sure that they were going to win games or, or at least get ties on the road and things like that a year ago. Part of that starts with losing their number one goal scorer and possibly a potential MVP candidate in Kai Kamara. We touched on it a little bit over the summer when this happens, but can you give listeners a little bit of a review of what happened with Kai Kamara and how he's now on the New England Revolution? Yeah, and let me start by saying that Kai is quite the personality. Um, you know, he he's your typical, you know, what you want in a forward, which isn't necessarily a, a me guy, but a guy that, you know, wants the attention, kind of wants the glory, wants to score goals, and, and that's what you look for. Um, what that also results in is a guy that can be a little temperamental um, at times. And though we didn't see much of that last year with the team doing well, you know, it started to uh, come out a little bit as, as they struggled at the beginning of this season. Um, earlier in the year, they had a game that uh, they were up 3-1. to one. Ty had two goals. Um, he's never scored a hat trick in his career. And they earned a penalty kick. Um, Ty wanted to take it. And we learned afterwards that both Kai and midfielder Federico Iguain are kind of designated as penalty kick takers, and I guess it was Iguain's turn. Um, so there's kind of this public uh, feud on the field between the two of them. And then afterwards in the locker room, Kai made some comments about how he doesn't need Iguain and the two aren't friends and don't get along and you know things like that, um, which, which kind of spilled over into the next week. Kai didn't take back his comments, didn't apologize. Greg Berhalter, the head coach, kind of likes to run a tight ship and and so he doesn't want to see things like that and it ultimately resulted in in the trade you mentioned with Ty going to New England and uh, Columbus kind of having to reshape how they attack which as you mentioned has been uh, quite the adjustment given you know how big of a a factor Ty was in their run last year. The season has been a struggle to say the least they've played 22 games as of right now and they've won three they've never they have not won a game on the road um they have 11 draws and eight losses. How are they still in contention for a playoff spot? How is that even possible? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's more remarkable that, you know, we can even talk about that with the, the record you mentioned and where they sit in the standing. Um, other teams have just struggled. You know, they, they play New England this weekend. New England's a team that, you know, should be better than they are on paper and, you know, have lost two of their last three. They're one win coming against the Chicago Fire who are the only team below the crew in the standings. 
Um, you know, it's been they had a bye week a couple weeks ago, and it went perfectly in terms of results to keep them only seven points or just over two wins out of the playoffs. I mean, things have really worked in their favor, and if they were able to capitalize and, and get some wins, especially home wins, you know, they'd be right in the thick of things. Patrick Murphy writes for Massive Report. He covers the Columbus crew for them. Patrick, thanks for joining me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. And that will do it for this week's episode of After the Score. You can find a full archive of our show at wosu.org slash after the score. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at after the score. Until next week, I'm Thomas Bradley.